Hi, everybody. Hi. Um, so once upon a time, there's this guy named Sid, um, who was very uh, disturbed, actually. We don't really talk about that aspect of the story, you know. But uh, actually, uh, but the Buddha, the the world honored one, uh, the what are they? The Light of Asia. Sometimes the like the early the early English translators used to call the Buddha the Light of Asia, um, and uh, uh, he was uh, what maybe like twenty eight years old, and he was losing his shit. You know, we don't really talk about that part. It's kind of like this thing: like there's this prince, and he he aspired to the truth. What is aspiring to the truth? Is losing your shit. <laughs> you know, um, so much so that he he threw his life away. You know, and think of someone that you know, married, baby on the way, got a good job, got it all made. And they just like left in the middle of the night. Would you retell that story like they were the light of Asia? <laughs> you know? Or would you be like, Sid's fucking up, you know? <laughs> what, what are we going to do with this dummy? He can't, he can't be happy no matter where he goes. What an idiot. <laughs> you know? I'm a little bit like that. You know? Everything I do feels a little bit tentative. This can't be right. You know? So, I mean, I wouldn't recommend listening to me so much. Um, but he that that not anesthetizing that that root issue that he had you know this word anesthetizing means to add anesthetic to you know so what, what coping mechanisms what ways do we have to like anesthetize our sense of kind of loss or alienation, or our frustration with our life as it is. Distraction. You know, there are distractions. Uh, for me, I like to eat. Um, and, yeah, like, I'll, uh, it'll be like, I'm like, I gotta get up at 5.30, and it's midnight, but there's a new SNL that came out last night, and let me see if any of them are funny. I'm gonna watch all of them, even though they usually aren't anymore. Um... You know, whatever it is. Or there's this guy I love, Mono Neon. And he plays bass over... He plays, like, bass over people talking. And I think it's the funniest thing in the world. And I'll just watch that for, uh, you know, video after video after video. You know, just... Uh, um, or go to a bar or something. So, like, you feel like, you feel like you're with people even though you're not. You know? Um, or a coffee shop. Feel like I'm with people even though I'm not. That's why there's so many people working at coffee shops to avoid that kind of sense of alienation, even if they're not making eye contact with anyone. You know, it's like, I could do this at home, but then I'll have to be just alone. Um, So this, this, uh, not really being able to just make it work, you know. And, um, and really confronting that consistently, 
with inquiry, you know, with calmness and inquiry, calmness and inquiry, not, not, not frantic inquiry. You know, this is, this is Buddhism's whole thing. You know, you have your, your quiet practice and then you have your inquiring practice and you're bringing both of those together. And they call that shamatha and vipassana. You know, uh, what's, what's the, uh, in the Tibetan tradition, the word for shamatha is shine, which translates to calm abiding. And the goal of shine is to develop, I love this phrase, meditative equipoise. <laughs> you know. um, and the closer you are to your meditative equipoise, the more, the more penetrating your inquiry is. Uh, and that's my big, that's the big thing I've been kind of getting at with folks. If you've had practice discussion with me this week, whether you asked me to talk about it or not, I probably talked about this um, inquiry being as important, more important than mindfulness. You know, if we watch, um, I hate to pick on her, but if we watch Oprah, you know, which you know, you probably should. Um, the or or whatever it is, uh, there's all this stuff about mindfulness. It's this kind of secularization, and 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 it's a secularization. So there's it accomplishes two jobs. It takes the religion out of it, and it makes it uplifting. You know, it's like the good news part of Buddhism. You know, it's like if you just sit in naked, spacious awareness, then everything's going to start going really well for you. You know? And uh, there's this Tibetan nun called Rabina Curtin. Um, and, uh, uh, well, she's Australian, but a nun in the Tibetan tradition. And she was giving a talk. She's a brat. She was giving a talk at um, Google. They, I, I, I bet you they didn't invite her back. Um, <clears throat> But she goes, darling, she always, she, she goes, darling, darling, listen to yourself, how stupid. <laughs> like, um, but she goes, uh, and you think the Dalai Lama is a really happy chap because he watches his breath really good. A little bit cliche, you know. So uh, do you become a happy chap by watching your breath? Not so much, I don't think, you know. Um, and... Is increased happiness a sign that your practice is going well? We'd like to think so. You know, if there's a little bit of a feeling of discomfort or dis-ease in ourselves, then the first thought, that feels, that feels like an alarm going off. That feels like a call to action. Like, what am I going to do about my life? I feel uncomfortable with it. But, you know, I've been using this analogy because a couple of my friends are taking uh, Chantix, which is the stuff that helps you quit smoking. You know, and it's like this... Um, it blocks whatever nicotine does to you, you know? So, and like, and like the Chantix, like, like prescription is like, take Chantix, smoke your ass off, go to town. It's not going to do anything, you know? And Buddhism works a little bit like that. Yeah. It's kind of like if we, if we sit still with the spirit of inquiry, like, what, who am I? What is this? What's going on? You know? And I'm going to talk about the specifics of what that inquiry is. Um, because it's not just like, and that's the point of Buddhist studies, it's not just like this kind of fumbling in the dark of like, who is this, 
You know, there's, there's a specific, there's some things that the yogis of the past have discovered, you know, some kind of guided questions to help you, to move you towards an accurate view, an accurate view that alleviates suffering. And because the Buddhist thing is like your suffering comes from an inaccurate view of how you exist. Yeah. So, um, so like the Chantix analogy, it's like, it's like once you start to have little insights into, into what I like to call the unspoken agreement that you have with objects. You know, we have this unspoken agreement with objects. Believing that they inherently exist and have inherent values and that we inherently exist and that we have inherent values and that there's an engagement that can happen that's going to cause some kind of lasting happiness for us with things outside of ourselves. And when I say object, I mean anything that's other. It could be people too. You know? Like deeply, deeply believing. Have you ever seen somebody and idealized them? You know? Like that's the kind of person I want in my life. You know? And some of you maybe ended up with that person that you idealized. You know? Forever or for a short while or something like that. And like did it... Think of everything... Think of everything you've ever wanted and everything you've ever gotten and to what extent did it deliver? You know, to what extent did it pay off on that unspoken agreement that you have with objects? Be it a slice of pizza, a pint of lager, a partner, you know, um, shoes, you know, a meditation retreat, um, a degree, you know. A lot of people, their degree did not really pay <coughs> off in the way that they expected, you know. Um... And so not turning away from that, because there's a lot of ways, it's amazing our capacity to just ignore that it's never worked, to ignore that our basic life approach has never worked. And we can just be kind of like, I think this time. <laughs> you know, I've spent so much of my adult life thinking that like, who I want to be is just right around the corner, you know, or the ideal situation is right around the corner. You know, it was Maka, it was, uh, someone had a practice discussion with me and then asked, oh, I'm, this is probably a breach of confidence, I'm sorry. <laughs> but someone asked Maka, like, uh, um, uh, does he have any students? You know, like, where's he based? About me. And Maka goes, well, he would if he'd stay in one place. <laughs> you know. And I think about that, you know. Kind of always kind of being like, you know what, though? This is, this is fine. This is okay. This is, you know, this, this is better than, than it was. But you know what I got to do? I got to do this next thing, you know? Um, so when you start to make that invisible agreement visible, that's this practice, which is not just being mindful. And it's not just like incrementally making deposits into your like well-being piggy bank every day. You know, there's this feeling like those people that take Chantix, they're frustrated. You know, they're just kind of like, I'm smoking, but it's not, it's, smoking isn't happening. <clears throat> you know, the payoff, where's the payoff? Where's the payoff? So, you could, so when you start engaging with this process of inquiry to make your invisible unspoken agreement with objects more visible, then your life actually gets less satisfying. Less, even less satisfying. Because now the um, anesthetizers don't work. 
you know, and the expectations are, are getting flimsy. So it's like, instead of, so you go from grass is always greener to like, there's nothing. <laughs> you know, there's no grass. <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And there's no me. You know. Um, so it's really tricky. No matter what, you know, no matter what your solution is, be it geographical or work-wise or partner-wise or something, they work to a certain degree. There's certainly, but the, but but in Buddhism, they're called secondary causes. You know, secondary causes for happiness and short-term causes for happiness. You know, um, I certainly, if you would, I had a relationship that was ten years long and then it ended. And and if you would ask me, you know, it's not gonna last forever. I'm like, yeah, no shit. And then when it ended, I'm like, what went wrong? That was wrong. You know, that's not supposed to happen. Sometimes I joke about relationships like, best case scenario, one of you watches the other one die. That's the, that's, that's, that's it going well. That's the payoff. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Sorry, that's a bit (laughs) macabre. But so Buddha said, so what's, what's the nature of this inquiry? You know, Buddha said in the early, early text in the Dhammapada, he said, these compound phenomena, which is, which is a Buddhist way of saying everything. And later in the Abhidhamma text, they called them, they call compound phenomena dharmas with, with the lowercase d. It just means things, stuff, you know, stuff is impermanent. And when you grow weary you know, when you see that impermanence, you grow weary of the suffering it causes. And this is the beginning of purification. And then Buddha says, uh, compound phenomena is empty of intrinsic self or inherent existence from its own side. That's an important aspect when we talk about emptiness, because otherwise it becomes this kind of mystical void. Or like, or like this, this like Hindu idea of akasha or something like that. That's not really what we're talking about in Buddhism when we talk about emptiness. We're talking about empty of intrinsic existence from its own side or empty of it, um, um, independent existence from its own side. Yeah. Empty of the imagined. Empty of what you're imputing on it. And there's various systematic and analytical meditations to start to pick that apart. Yeah. Um, I smell Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I've been wearing this shawl around all week, and, and the weather changed, and it's not necessary for me to wear it anymore, but I won't give it up. It's like various things. Um, uh, and then he said, uh, you know, compound phenomena... Oh, so compound phenomena is empty of intrinsic existence from its own side... Seeing this, one grows weary of the suffering attributed to it. And that's the beginning of purification. So there's this, so there, in, these, in these stanzas, it's like growing weary is the beginning of purification. Now, I'm not crazy about the word purification, but, you know, interpret it as you like. Um, but, uh, you know, in early Buddhism, this word purification, there's this idea of kind of like you minus the hindrances, you minus the false views as a Buddha. In the Mahayana, we're a little bit different. We're kind of like you plus nothing is a Buddha. Because our thing is a little bit more from the position of all those false views are adventitious and they aren't you anyway. Yeah. 
because there's an, there's a way in which approaching your hindrances that you can if you like really feel like you got to uproot them there's that kind of reifies them in a way and so that's the way the two traditions kind of cleanse each other um that's why the Prajaparamita literature came out around 500 years after Buddha died. Really, really emphasizing this emptiness stuff. Like if you ever chanted the Heart Sutra. That's about 1st century AD. Um, and uh, because the previous schools have been you know, really, really, really talking about all of this, uh, they call it the Abhidhamma, which is the higher Dharma. And, and really... Positing, it's like it's like a periodic table of mental events, you know, um, and uh, and mental factors, um, and states of mind, and and they didn't mean to. They, you know, the people that created it may very well had an excellent understanding of not self, but over time, when you start to practice relating to these mental states, you really kind of buy into it, you know. So that's why every every few centuries, Buddhism has to kind of like come up with a new movement to kind of wash itself a bit, you know? Because yeah. it's such a subtle thing, you know? This, this um, you know, you know, I've known people that have been practicing for a while, and they, like, make that joke of, like, well, it's all empty anyway, and it, I hate that joke, you know? Because it's not, it, it, it's not a real accurate understanding of the nuance of what we're actually getting at, you know? Or, like, uh, Oh my God! There's a there's a checkout guy in in Austin that li- loves to make Buddhist jokes with me, and every time I'm just please don't, please don't, just stop. you know he's like you know the, the the hot Buddhist goes to a hot dog vendor, and I'm like yeah I know I know he does you know please <laughs> <laughs> yeah because they're always this kind of wrong kind of make me one with everything this is it's not a one with everything kind of thing you know um anyway. Um, so the spirit of inquiry. So inquiry what? What are we trying to see? You know? Um, and we're going to really, really... I'm tempted. Like, so I want to get into all the specifics, but I have to keep this like, kind of... Because we're going to go into all the breakdowns that the different schools came up with, with what we're actually... How we're, how we're you know, investigating this stuff. But, I mean, really, the main three things is that everything is impermanent. Everything doesn't have any kind of fixed inherent essence from its own side. And that when you believe these two things, when you, when you, when you misinterpret, when you impute lastingness or you impute, impute inherent qualities, then there's vexation that happens because the world isn't behaving in the way that you keep expecting it to. You know? We have a root misunderstanding of how objects behave. And we keep relating to them based on this misunderstanding. Yeah. Um, and there was a very, very elaborate system of different kinds of meditation, different analytical meditations and, and devotional practices and tantric practices that, were, that, that arose throughout Buddhist history. And sometimes arose in non-Buddhist, because yogic culture is much vaster than Buddhism. You know, and so let's say you have these Shiva devotees in Kashmir that come up with a certain spiritual technology of visualizing yourself as a deity and taking on the the attributes of the deity or something like that. And Buddhists are looking at that and they're going like, 
that's good stuff. We should we should integrate that into what we're doing, and that and then you get stuff like Tibetan Buddhism and 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 Tantric Buddhism. They they want to tell you. They want to attribute everything back to the historical Buddha. So they're like, oh, actually, Shakyamuni taught this in heaven and nobody could hear him. And then, <laughs> you know, it was hidden and then it was revealed by Maitreya and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, it's, they're, they're, they were all cross-contaminating and copying each other. And that's fine. That's fine, you know. But Buddha, uh, you know, I don't like, spiritual traditions are always kind of apologizing for themselves. Um, if you watch, try watching a yoga documentary and, and you could play a drinking game take a shot every time they, they call it a science you know it's like yoga, you don't have to be science we love you anyway it's okay <laughs> you know and it's like Tantra you don't have to be Buddhist you know it's a spiritual technology and similarly there's a there's a, a, a strong Buddhist tradition of bhakti especially in East Asia which is devotion you know um, and I want to talk a little bit about that so there's people have different dispositions, and um, actually, there's people that might be trying to practice Zen that aren't really. It doesn't really do much for them, you know. Or there's people that are practicing Vipassana, and maybe it's kind of like, you know, fanning the flames of their kind of Virgo particular kind of like, you know, because Vipassana is a little bit like um, paint by numbers meditation. You know, and uh, some of us, if you're a little bit too flowy, loosey-goosey and intuitive, maybe you can use a little bit of structure like that, you know? But then, and then you have people that are maybe in the Galukpa tradition of Tibetan Buddhism doing analytical meditations, and like, it actually doesn't really challenge their worldview so much. But, so, it's tricky. I think all of them need to be tempered with each other a little bit, you know? But I also think that you, but on the other hand, it's also good to do something that really works for you. So it's tricky. It's like, do something that works for you, but not if it really, but keep an eye out for if it's like kind of giving you permission to kind of uh, maintain your, your, your neuroses. You know, those are the two things you got to do. Like me, I'm like, I don't like rules and like, I'm like kind of spacey or whatever. So Zen's perfect for me, <laughs> you know, because Zen is actually, you know, I mean, Zen's really, really structured in terms of formalities, but you, but in terms of doctrine, what doctrine? You know, there's not much. There's not much. There's no, there's not much hard and fast kind of you're in or you're out. You got to believe this kind of stuff because we don't really have much teaching. Really, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's not there's nothing system, systematic about it, you know. Which is great. It kind of gives you, you know, this open field. But it's like, what are you going to do with that open field? You got to be a little bit autodidactic, you know, because you could be coming here for ages and really think that if you watch your breath good enough, your life's going to go better, without that spirit of inquiry at all. I mean, how often have you heard impermanence no self? I mean, do you hear it in this room very much? Or did you hear it like early on when you just first started studying Buddhism? And then it kind of fades into the background. And then you start thinking, okay, shashu, gasho, you know, and it gets replaced with all the particularities of this place. But you kind of get out of touch with like Buddhist teaching, you know, because we don't really, yeah. We talk about the immediacy of our experience in Zen. But what's the framework for it? What's the framework for interpreting it in a way that, or having some context about what we're experiencing so that it leads to liberation? Does that make sense? So, okay. I haven't started yet either. This is not the topic that I wanted. Um, 
This is the preface. So um, one thing that I wanted to talk about in regards to Zen and, and, and Buddhism is that Zen is very interesting. And we inherited two things in two specific points of time and points of history that are kind of, um, it's important to bring it to our awareness and, and think about whether we want to continue that or not, you know, in terms of the flavor of the school. One thing was in China, there was a strong, we're talking about 500 to 700 AD in China, there was a strong anti-academic or anti-scholastic or anti-doctrinal movement because there was an over-scholasticism, an over-academic kind of approach to sutra study in China. So that was the first kind of sloughing off the intellectual aspect of it and going to the immediacy of experience. It was a, it was a reformist movement, which is all fine and good if you're in a setting where everybody's over-educated on Buddhism. If you're not in a setting where everybody's all over, uh, over-educated on Buddhism and you have everybody saying there's a special transmission outside of the scriptures, you just kind of have a bunch of dummies. You know, and I've never met people that were more proud of not knowing anything about Buddhism than American Zen students. Sorry, I'm getting harsh. Um, um, you know, just like, I don't know, I watch my breath, you know, or whatever. I, I just sit in what is, or something. It's like, so that what? You know, there's an agenda here. You know, forget all that crap about no goal. <laughs> you know? Um, and then the other thing that happened was much more interesting, and I have a little story about it. And this was very, this was, this was, it's a very beautiful, very interesting, very inspiring movement in East Asian Buddhism and in Japanese religious history that we're really much the direct recipients of and also has an approach that might not be so relevant for us today, similar to the anti-scholastic thing. And I want to tell you about it by way of telling you about this, this monk called Honen. There's a monk called Honen training at Mount Hiei, which is a 10-day monastery. So there's this mountain outside of Kyoto called Mount Hiei, and then there's this giant monastery called uh, Enrakuji, I think. Um, and it, it's been, it had been there for a few, couple hundred years, and since it was so cu- close to the capital, um, it was kind of like the state, it was the most dominant form of Buddhism at the time, you know? Um, and it's, the sect is called Tendai, which comes from uh, a mountain in China called Tiantai. And so the Japanese pronunciation is Tendai, Center Mount Hiei. Still there. And um, it's a little bit of kind of like a syncretic type of Buddhism. You know, they, they, got, they got it all. They got esoteric. They got exoteric. They got devotion. They got... Uh, um, Mikyo, which is like secret practices and mantrayana and stuff like that. And, and if you, maybe you've heard of the marathon monks of Mount Hiei where they just run around and, and, uh, with these big curtains on their heads and, and, um, and uh, like these rolled bamboo things, you know, um, and uh, in white robes and they visit all these shrines and stuff and then they only get to have like half a glass of milk or something and like... And if you don't, and if you don't do it, you have to kill yourself or something. Um, <laughs> men. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and uh, 
And so there's this monk called Honen, and right at right at the late Heian period, late Heian period is the late 1100s, Civil War. I mean, we don't. When a lot of times when Westerners think about Japanese history, they don't know how screwed. Like, I don't want to say screwed up, but I mean like how gnarly it was. We think of Japan and we think of like kind of like order and everything is lacquer and there's tatami rooms and everybody's polite and there's a ceremony for every little way of engaging with somebody and stuff like that. But it was mostly people starving and killing each other in this period, you know? And so we don't think about how gnarly that kind of, that period in Japanese history is where all the, uh, where Buddhism really went through a major transformation. So there's a monk called Honen right after the Civil War and there's this little story and I only know of it because I watched the Honen cartoon. Um on YouTube, and this little boy runs by with a chicken that he had stolen off of a spit roaster, like a hobo is roasting a, a spit roasting a chicken, and this little kid steals it and runs away. And Honen's, you know, sitting on the riverbank, this Tendai monk, and the kid goes and hides under the bridge. And the kid goes, don't tell him I'm here, or whatever. And then this kind of big, like, I'll, I'll get that little kid, like, like guy comes by, and, um, and he asked Honen, he's like, where'd he go? And Honen kind of pointed further to protect the kid or whatever. And then the guy runs away, and then the little kid comes out, um, and he goes, thanks, mister. You know, it was kind of like this. <laughs> it was dubbed, so it was kind of like, it was kind of like Dennis and Menace or something. Um, thanks, mister. And, um, and uh, he goes, like, you shouldn't steal, you know? And the kid's kind of like, Give me a break, dude. We're dying out here. You know? And he's like, where are your parents? He's like, they starved. You know? And then it starts raining. And then they go together to this shrine, this empty shrine. And one side was the sick people and one side was the bodies. You know? And, and Honan has this minute while he's there where he's just kind of like... Everything I'm learning doesn't have anything to do with, with these people. You know, all this sophisticated Buddhist stuff and all of these esoteric rituals and things like that. And so at that, and, and, and the way the story goes in the cartoon, may, may or may not have ever happened, but irrelevant, right? Um, what? Yeah, I mean, it's like a documentary practically. Um, <laughs> apparently when he sees all the people in the, in the shrine, he goes like, no, we need a Butsu. And the little kid goes, what is that that you said? You know, and, and he says, oh, I was just like homage to the Buddha of infinite light and life. And so the kid like took interest in that. And him having that interaction with this kid taking interest in that was like, maybe I should just spread this practice of, of saying Buddha's name. You know, and check out the rest. And just like the teaching is that like, just entrust yourself, you know. And then there's more sophisticated implications there, too, with both Honen and his later disciples, like Shinran. Um, and they all started their own schools. Honen started what you, with the Pure Land School, which is called Jodoshu. And then Honen's disciple, Shinran, got married. He was a monk, and he got married. And, there's this, and, and I think there's a story where he goes like, oh, no, it's okay, she's a nun. <laughs> um, because Honen said... Whatever life situation makes it more possible for you to say Buddha's name, then live like that. You know, which is a major about face in, 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 in Buddhist history. You know, that you had clergy getting married, which we inherited. You know. um, 
and and really streamlining the practice to be like um, actually forget about your own efforts like like forget about the I removing the I through the I's efforts and just entrust yourself to the power of Amida's vow to save you to, to Amida, Amida Buddha made a vow to liberate you and just entrust yourself to Amida you know now this may or may not be moving to you depending on your disposition you know there's analytical people, there's devotional people, you know. But it's important to know about these different paths of practice. There's something, if you're in the midst of, of tr- being frustrated with your life or trying to figure your life out or something like that, there's something about, and I don't think it's anesthetization, I think there's something about uh, um, that kind of like, Namu Amida Butsu. Namu Amida Butsu. This homage to the Buddha of infinite light and life, just just to 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 put a gap there, to put a pause there, you know, and entrust yourself to like, you know, like I have no control over any of this, you know, especially the externals. You know. Now, in that specific period of history in in Japan, there was you had like a good hundred, couple hundred years of nothing new happening in Buddhism. And then, with the beginnings of Honen, Shinron, this guy called Nichiren, um, Dogen, uh, who else we got? Eisai, uh, Ipen, all these people started their own schools. And they were all Tendai monks. And, they, and so, within, so you had a couple hundred years of no change, and then right after the Civil War, like six different people go and start their own schools. And what they all have in common is that they're all focused on doing one practice with great diligence and faith at the expense of everything else. You know? And Zen is definitely one of those. You know, it, they could be argued, and I think Taigen Dan Leighton in Chicago, who often co-translates with Shohaku Okamura, he, he does posit that, you know, he, he, that this idea that to Dogen, Zazen was actually a faith-based practice. Or what, or what they call in Japanese Buddhism an other power practice of entrusting yourself to something. You know? Not so much a, a, a matter of will. You know? um, now, that's a really... I like, I like that. I think that's a neat movement in Japanese history. And that idea... like Actually, we're not really in the midst of us personally are not currently at our wits end and stealing chickens and stuff like that like the kid. And like actually we might not be so relevant to us to have that streamlined um, faith-based practice because I think a precursor for that feeling really relevant is that, is that amount of duress where you can actually relinquish that kind of notion of learning or that, uh, that notion of transformation you know, through your own effort. So I think it might be more relevant for us to actually bring back in that notion of learning and analysis and transformation. Because I don't think we have that amount of duress. And when we do, at any given point in our lives, when you, do, when you are under that amount of duress, that practice is there, that pure land, you know, just handing it over. Jesus, take the wheel kind of practice. Yeah. Which, which my, boy, I'm, boy George is kind of like my hero. And boy George is a Nietzschean Buddhist. Um, <laughs> he's a karma chameleon. Um, which is their worst song Um, 
para... So what I want to do is to, to reattach those kind of severed parts to this tradition. Maintaining that um, iconoclastic inheritance that we received, you know, where we kind of like, and, 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 it's, and I think it's a result of like that kind of Prajnaparamita uh, idea coming in to kind of challenge the assertion of uh, the teachings being true. You know, like, can you, um, how do you relate to and imbibe the teaching without becoming a, a proponent of some kind of orthodoxy? You know, and that's one thing that I appreciate about the Zen tradition, that I felt like I could ordain and become a teacher and all of that, and I actually, it wasn't my job to push any kind of orthodoxy on someone, you know. And a lot of the other traditions are kind of doing that, you know. Um, they say, oh, use your critical mind and stuff, but if you don't come to the same conclusion, then you just keep trying. You know, you're wrong. <laughs> um, and, and we, and, but there are definitely rigidities in Zen. If you go to a Zen teacher and you say that you're doing, you know, some other practice, or even if you kind of believe it, if you use the word divinity, you know, depending on what teacher you're seeing. Like, I went through a period where if someone said divinity to me, I'm like, get that shit out of here. We don't do divinity in Buddhism. That's some Vedanta, you know. That's Eckhart Tolle. You know, we don't talk about no divinity. Um, but I, but, but, but in, what's important is what's, like, potent for you. And to hold everything with kind of a loose hand. There's this great story about um, a Tibetan uh, lama. I forget who it was. But one of his students asked him, uh, is Tara real? You know, Tara is the deity that you do visualizations of in Tantra. And, and he goes, she knows she's not real. <laughs> yeah. And uh, like Brad Warner has this book called There Is No God and He Is Always With You. <laughs> you know, so kind of... Um, uh, it doesn't matter so much. Like, like um, I remember, I was sitting on the. I had a. I was. Uh, I was. I used to be a hotshot in the Zen world. Um, <laughs> so so much so that I had a balcony at Green Gulch. I had a little, like, b um, balcony overlooking the parking lot at Green Gulch. And I remember sitting out there and I was listening to a talk by, uh, like, one of the foremost Western, like, Krishna, the like International Society of Krishna Consciousness, like like, chanting in the street people, you know? Um, and this is my, apparently this is my sign for listening to the talk. Um, <laughs> and he said, uh, and I have no real strong belief in um, this sense of kind of divinity. But I do think that divinity, what is it other than an attitude of awe and appreciation over the dynamic functioning of things, you know? I don't think it has a, like a conscience or something like that, you know, but there's a dynamic functioning of things that's kind of like, look at that, you know, and so if I could relate to divinity in that way, and then he says, he said, uh, when you adore Krishna, Krishna reciprocates, and he, and he said, when you adore Krishna as manifested in all existence, Krishna reciprocates. You know, and I'm this like Zen guy that like you know 
godless Zen guy. And, um, and I'm looking out at the trees and stuff, and I like, and I just like adored Krishna. You know? And like Krishna totally reciprocated. You know, and it's very interesting how, you know, you can use certain concepts to turn your mind a bit. You know, turn the trajectory of your mind if you will relinquish what you know is true. You know, well, I studied Buddhism really well, so I know that there's no Krishna. You know, there's no, you know, the things are, things are empty of inherent existence from its own side, and there's no divinity, and there's no, you know, substratum of existence that's holding it all together, you know, or whatever. And, um, and uh, if I could put that aside, I could put my knowledge aside and do the yoga of it, you know, and feel the efficacy of the yoga of it and feel the grace that I can receive from the yoga of it, no matter what the method is, you know. Um, so, yeah, it'd be interesting to check in with yourself and see what your kind of disposition is and what kind of practice seems most, most nourishing for you. You know, but it's got to be nourishing, not in this anesthetizing way, but nourishing to, because in order to challenge this sense of self, we have to feel a little bit of safety. You know? Um, so there, there's that nourishing and there's that calming to the point where you can actually look at your root beliefs with some objectivity. You know? um, and it's not massively threatening. Yeah. So that's the... Yeah, that's why we have the quieting practice and then the inquiry practice. But that quieting practice could be devotion. Could be bhakti. Could be chanting Buddha's name. Could be playing a harmonium. Could be going to a mass. You know? Something that gets you out of yourself a little bit. You know? Could be analysis. Maybe when you're in the midst of analysis, your emotions are stirred up a little bit less around, around clinging to yourself. Um, we have a couple minutes. I'm sorry that I don't. I didn't give you anything really conclusive. I don't think. I don't. But I'm not big on conclusions. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you said at one point, forget all this, having no goal. There's an agenda here. Um, and I guess my question is, what's the agenda? How how would you articulate the agenda? Yeah. How, how like with all these things that you're talking about with like different forms of practice, analytical, devotional, mm. entrusting, like how do these give rise to like following or discovering the agenda? Yeah. So the agenda is really, I mean, I've been really reading and we're going to talk about Yogacara in the, in the course, we're going to talk about the Yogacara levels of consciousness. And I'm, and I apologize that I'm not finding a way to describe this without getting technical in that way. But, you know, in Buddhism, in Buddhist psychology, there's these levels of consciousness, and there's one of them in particular, which is the seventh, called Manas Vijnana, which is your sense of me-ness. It's the, it's, the, it's the aspect of your mind that thinks there's a me. And it, and it interprets everything that it sees based from the point of view of me, and hears and smells and tastes, and it relates to um, all of its past experiences, all of the seeds of past experience that have perfumed the mind, and it attaches to them and makes meaning 
out of what's coming in based on the backlog. You can call it almost like the emotion, the emotional alert database. You know, every experience that you've had has perfumed your mind in certain ways, you know, and given you, give, and, and those are benign in and of themselves, but there's that sense of I that is kind of this messenger between your emotional alert database and everything that you're encountering in your life and attributing a self-centered meaning to it, you know? So I would say that the agenda of practice is starting to uproot the self-centered meaning that we attribute to everything that we experience, you know? And that is, and that gives rise simultaneously to wisdom and compassion, you know? The wisdom of how things actually exist and then this benevolent behavior because it's not coming from a self-centered place, you know? And sometimes we fake it, which is problematic. It's a coping mechanism, you know? Sometimes it's like, well, I know I'm, if I'm a good Buddhist, then, you know, this person that lied to me is just like, they're having a hard time or whatever. And they're, maybe they got lied to or maybe they're, you know, they had a rough childhood or whatever. It's like Erica Badu just had this... Um, Erica Bat just just got interviewed and she's like, Hitler was a great painter, you know, he had a rough childhood and blah 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 and everybody's kinda like, dude, just not no. You know? <laughs> and so there's something about like um um not not pretending like you're there before you're there and, and because I think that negatively impacts your your actual psychophysical health. You know? Um like there's a story of George Harrison where he's on his, he's basically on his deathbed, right? And Ringo is visiting him, and they're in like Switzerland or something, and then Ringo's like, I have to go visit my daughter, she's sick too, and she's in Boston or whatever, and George is like, oh, should I come? And Ringo like weeps because George is so amazing and blah, 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 but it's like, no, that's a pathology. Like, yeah, he is great, and he is kind, but it's like, he's a quiet beetle, you know, he apologized to his mom when he got married, saying, like, I'm, I'll come visit you. There's that kind of indentured kind of thing that is, at, you know, and I look at, like, Suzuki Roshi, who had that very, very kind of selfless thing as, a, as an, kind of an identity. And he got cancer in his 60s. You know, I think there's a correlation. And I'm totally ripping off Gabe Almonte, the, 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 psych, the psychologist, when I, when I talk about this. But um, I think there's a correlation between like kind of false selflessness that is actually a coping mechanism, um, and and like being ill, you know. Um, selflessness as an identity. Yes, yeah, selflessness as an identity, you know, like the martyr mom that I'll eat the burnt chicken. You guys have everything, you know. Um, so I don't. Know, but how would I say that? Oh, but so but like so the agenda of practice. Um, to really, um, bit by bit, confront that sense of self. So you're sitting here, and you hear a car go by, and, you're, and there's that inquiry there. You're kind of like, where's the me that didn't hear the car right now? You know, when the car's gone, where did, where did the me go that did hear a car? You know, and just like all the time, with every, with every notion that arises, where is the me that was hungry after you ate? You know, and just really turning your eye to the transitory nature of the of the unspoken agreement that we have with objects, or or, or the ever changing continuum of, of our mind stream and what we're identifying as. I just had this. Um, I read this article saying 
Where did the where did the ginger gene come from in in Italy? You know, and I've always had this like very like I'm Sicilian. You know, it's because I think when you're white in America, you kind of glom. If if you're, I mean, I certainly did. What what whatever shred of culture you have, you really want to glom onto it because you have no real cultural identity. You know, or the or especially if you're kind of a separatist, anarchist, whatever, you're really kind of not interested in kind of the white American cultural identity. So you want to set yourself apart from that. You know, so I'm just like, I'm Sicilian, man. Like, hey. You know, and like, and like, and my family, I don't know, Italian Americans are the most enthusiastic about their stereotypes as like any other kind of immigrant community, whatever. But like, so we want people to think we're mobsters, right? Um, and, uh, um, and then I'm like, and I have red hair. My sister has red hair. My great grandmother, um, Katie Acquaviva, had red hair. And, um, and then it turns out that the Normans invaded. Um, in like, I don't know, 900 or something like that. And like, if you have red hair and you live in Italy, basically you're Norse. <laughs> Which ruins everything. I didn't want to be... Some white guys like the idea of being Vikings. I wanted to be Mediterranean, you know? Um, I did not want to be a Viking. It's so... But, but then, I, then I warmed up to it. I'm like, well, maybe I should, you know, start lifting weights or, you know, wear eyeliner or something. I don't know. <laughs> So, um, but it's in, but it's like but like those little things like I knew who I was, you know, and like I had this whole identity based on it, and that's and and if you do enough um, calm abiding, it's not this massive affront when new information comes in, and when it shakes up, you kind of delight in it, you know. Uh, it's kind of like. Um, Everything gets a little softer. Everything gets a little bit softer. Um, because, like, you know, there's a story of Buddha's enlightenment. And the armies of Mara are coming. And they shoot the flaming arrows. And, but when the arrows reach the Buddha field, they turn into flower petals. And they're, they're, they turn into flower petals when they reach the Buddha field. Because Buddha, doesn't, Buddha knows that there's no person there. There's no, there's no person to be afflicted there. You know, there's just an ever-changing continuum of body and mind. You know, temporarily coming together. So there is a self, the self that exists as an, as an ever-changing continuum of body and mind temporarily come together. You know, but so, uh, you know, getting at the suffering that's caused by thinking that there's a me and that there's objects and that there's some kind of interaction that has some kind of lasting, you know, level... Attachment and aversion. You know, the, the, our mode of engagement with objects is attachment and aversion. Attachment is exaggerating the positive qualities of an object and thinking that proximity to it causes lasting happiness. Aversion is exaggerating the negative qualities of an object, thinking that separation from it causes happiness. If everything's always in flux and what I need and want is always in flux, how can I rely on that, on that dynamic? You know? So that's what that's the agenda, I would say. A direct yogic perception of the lack of intrinsic existence of self and objects. <laughs> you know, to be technical. Does that make sense? And so to keep your to keep that in focus with, with, with whatever practice you're engaging in and see in which way it supports that. 
And that's how you get away from that anesthetizing thing. It's like, am I doing this bhakti to make me feel safe enough to engage this in inquiry about myself? You know, or am I just trying to take the bus to Bliss Town? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions or thoughts? So when you mean yogi, I'm, 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 I'm immediately thinking, you know, like it's uh, out of your head, back in your body. Uh... I think there's a blurry line between those two things. Um, I wouldn't... I don't... I don't... I mean, I, I'm guilty of using that language sometimes. Like, sometimes I say a below-the-neck experience or something like that. But I think... Um, yeah, yogic... Well, yeah, you know what? I'll agree with you. I, I'm, I'm hesitant to... I'm hesitant to make, a, to make a distinction between body and mind. But I will say... But when you say head, that's a little bit different than mind. That's, I'm thinking kind of conceptual. And I will say, yeah, not quite conceptual. You know, yoga, a yogic experience being not really a conceptual experience. You know, because like, there's feelings that you, there, there's things that are true to you that are not conceptual. I don't have any examples right now. <laughs> but I think that's true, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Um, when, um, when I think I know I've got it, mm -hmm. um, then I know I don't have it. Mm -hmm. The sense of self is mm -hmm. transparent. Could I, I've gotten enlightened so many times. <laughs> so, I thought, you know, if, if you... Do you remember when I had my, my um, <coughs> Krishna adoring me? Krishna reciprocating? I thought I thought I really had it all figured out from then on. I you did too. You did too. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a good bullshit artist. You know? <laughs> yeah, so many times I'm like, oh, it's this, you know. And as soon as it's this, your your situation changes again. You know. So I like to think like if you're not a little bit embarrassed of who you were in your practice previously, then you're then you're doing something wrong. You know, you got to always be embarrassed of yesterday. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anything else? Okay, y'all. Thank you. Uh, let's. Um, oh, we're gonna have announcements right after that, right? Is that so? Yeah. I, like, I always look at you. You're kind of like okay. the de facto. Well, I mean, it just depends if people, if the people here now were here an hour ago, do they need the same announcements then? Do you oh. want to skip them? I can, oh. I can, we can do it. Well, I'm just trying to think about when we're going to reconvene. I'm, I'm, I'll, say, I'll say if you're here for the course, why don't you come back at um, 12, 12... How does 12.30 sound? 12.30 sound good? Okay, I don't want to lose momentum. So, Ernest. So we're going to lunch Yeah, you can have tea and kind of find food and then just be back at 12.30. Okay? Cool. All right.